the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Welcome to today's Farm Advisory Service podcast. We're going to be hosting a series of podcasts and webinars focusing on fodder beet for livestock. Fodder beet is a crop which is really gaining popularity in Scotland through its high yield, its excellent nutrition and the agronomy options that are available compared to your traditional brassica crops. It's not a brassica crop, it's a beet crop, and because it's a beet crop, it's got a higher sugar load, which requires really careful management for livestock. I'm Kirsten Williams, a beef and sheep consultant with SEC Consulting, and we are joined for this series on fodder beet with Dr. Jim Gibbs. He is joining us all the way from New Zealand. He is a vet, a ruminant nutritionist, and an absolute fodder beet expert. Jim has been involved in the development of grazing systems over New Zealand with fodder beet since 2008, and he's been absolutely instrumental into designing all the systems. We've got three editions in this series. The first two, we're going to cover transition, which is vitally important, and the last will cover health. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. I was just wondering if you could maybe start with telling us a bit of your background in the history of fodder beet out in New Zealand. Well, thank you, Kirsten, for the introduction, and it's a pleasure to be here with the Scottish audience uh, for this, the first of these podcasts. Um, New Zealand has a long history of winter cropping, um, perhaps more so than a lot of other countries. Uh, and as dairy in particular moved into the South Island of New Zealand from the North Island, while the farms were larger, uh, the problem began to be that the winter feed was never available. So it was almost universal in the South Island to have winter crops, uh, remembering that the New Zealand dairy industry is almost always uh, spring calving, block spring calving, and therefore a winter dry period. So winter cropping uh, had a long history in the South Island, and traditionally it was a brassica um, approach. There were a number of reasons why that was um, not optimal, and many farmers were looking for changes. The, the yields are relatively low, uh, they're quite variable, and on top of that there's a quite a large series of animal health issues with uh, brassicas grazing them as a primary diet in winter. So there were farmers who were looking for a change and trying whatever they could. Now, from about 2004 forward, I was working in room and function uh, at Lincoln University, and we were doing uh, winter work, brassica work largely, and looking at various aspects of winter uh, room and function. At the time that some farmers imported their own seed into New Zealand, because it was unknown in New Zealand, there really wasn't any fodder beet hectares there at all. And as an extension of that, around that time, I was asked to look at this because one of the issues was, although the crops were large and attractive to, for various reasons for the farmers, uh, the deaths, particularly in uh, wintering dairy cows at the time, the, the deaths were frequent and distressing. And so I was asked to look specifically at um, this crop, given that it was such an attractive yield, but there were such animal health issues with it. The prevailing idea at the time which was an idea that had been brought from Europe, was that the crop was toxic because the leaves contained oxalic acid. And oxalic acid ties up calcium, and so it can produce milk fever-like syndromes even in dry stock. 
the idea was that because of this oxalic acid content in the leaf, there was a limited amount of that uh, plant that could be eaten any day on any given day. That it was just simply a, a measured amount, and if you got beyond that, there were toxicity issues. So we began looking at it uh, more carefully. There was no reason to disbelieve that in the early days. So in the first year, we began looking at that quite carefully. And I had the good fortune that because there was um, effectively no hectorage at all in New Zealand at the time, and everybody who was using it, with the one exception or so, was in wintering dairy, that I could look and follow the people who were trying to use it. And we were using rumen fistulate animals and grazing them on fodder beet myself to follow through some of these ideas and the first thing that I noticed with it was that uh, although the deaths were strong and they were that they didn't fit the pattern of a toxicity death um, they, they tended to be very clustered and they were clustered on calendar date times so it made it highly unlikely that that was going to be a toxicity death the second component was I'd spent my whole career in rumen function and particularly in rumen pH and it was fairly obvious to me that all the deaths that I saw were a consequence of a fairly straightforward rumen acidosis. So we then began to look at that very carefully using the rumen fistulates and um, as it turned out, uh, it was a correct hypothesis and we demonstrated pretty quickly that the only issue, the only health issue was a pretty simple uh, sugar or you know, water-soluble carbohydrate overload in that early time. And as a consequence of that work directly, we instituted the idea of the necessity of a transition and put some figures around what was required in transition, as we'll come to later in this um, podcast. There's some unusual quirks of this crop that mean that the transition period is longer than it would be if it was any other water-soluble carbohydrate, for example. And once we'd quantified that, we promulgated that in extension to farmers with field days over many years. And um, that's the universal transition that's still used today. And that's what we'll be discussing here tonight. So I think it's, it's brilliant that you guys over in New Zealand have got all this experience since 2008 because the crop has vastly grown in popularity over here in Scotland. And um, you have obviously lived, seen, breathed problems that can occur so it's fantastic that we can learn from you guys to to prevent some of these problems so a lot of our systems will have various classes of stock going on we'll have yows we'll have cows we'll have dairy cows we'll have finishing cattle there'll be everything going on to this crop and our next podcast we're going to speak about species specific but most of these animals will be going on for the winter so they'll be coming off of grass onto the fodder beet so why why do we need to transition Jim? Yes so uh, I guess there's a little bit of a background on that crop that uh, demonstrates the reasons with, within the animal why that transition is necessary. And the first thing to say about it is that the the New Zealand understanding and use of this crop is that it's going to be the primary diet. I mean, in some cases, it'll be a 100% diet, and that would typically only be with uh, sheep, particularly with ewes. But in almost every other case where it's used and used effectively, it'll be 90% or so of the diet. So there's very little other uh, feed that are put into these systems. So whatever they're moving from, and traditionally for us that will be grass, uh, obviously that there's a, a significant diet change when they're moving over to the crop. But the far more important component of the crop that um, becomes important in transition is that you have within that crop effectively 
two feeds. You have a leaf and a bulb component. In uh, agronomically well-husbanded crop, you'll have about 25% of the dry matter will be in the leaf and the rest of it will be in the bulb. Now, the leaf will contain a disproportionately larger amount of protein and macro minerals, and the bulb really will have a relatively low nitrogen content and it'll have a lot of sugar. On a dry matter basis, it can commonly be 50% sucrose. So it's really an energy bomb. And to use that crop effectively, you have to have the leaf and the bulb in some sort of balance. But it does mean that you have a feed that these animals are eating a lot of that is very, very high in water-soluble carbohydrate. The only equivalent feeds that people would come across with this would be cereal grains in high-end feedlot diets. The second component of this crop that comes into play with it is that it, it's a relatively low dry matter crop. So to have uh, high intakes of this crop for effective production of it, it means that the animals have to consume or eat a very large amount of water. To give some frame of reference for that for the audience, um, if we were to take a 450 kilo steer in a feedlot, their total daily water intake will be something in the vicinity of 25 litres or so. If you take one of the wintering dairy cows on unrestricted beet intakes on the low dry matter cultivars of beet, their water intake that they're eating, so independent of anything that they drink, and they drink very little of course, their water intake that they're eating can be over 120 litres a day. So there's a tremendous water load that's associated with high dry matter intakes on these crops. And of course, we almost always want high dry matter intakes the way that we would use them. And then the third feature of this crop that makes transition difficult is that it's a spectacularly high yielding forage crop compared to everything else that we have available to us. Um, it, the, the higher end crops in New Zealand now are commonly over 30, 35 tonnes of dry matter and the very largest independently certified crops in New Zealand, which aren't as uncommon as they used to be, are well over 40 tonnes of dry matter a hectare now. On, on a practical level, that means in any square metre in that crop, there's four kilograms of uh, dry matter. So if you put those things together, they, uh, they make a, a difficult crop to, to use. And there's two... Um, there's two most, the two most important reasons why it's a difficult crop to use. We'll go back to the sugar and the water load. The, the way that ruminants transfer energy from their diet to their body, uh, unlike us as monogastrics, uh, is to principally use a carbohydrate uh, source. And in the main, they will ferment that carbohydrate source in the rumen. And then the fermented products, which are an organic acid, typically a volatile fatty acid as they're termed, will be absorbed and then used in the body as the uh, energy substrate. Unlike us, we just chop up those carbohydrates and use those um, simple energy sources. They don't. So to put it another way, every component of their energy uh, absorption from that diet, carbohydrate-wise anyway, will be coming through an acid. Put it bluntly, if you want more production and you want a higher energy intake, you have a higher acid production in the rumen. Now, the rumen's a very sophisticated organ, and there's a series of systems that mean that it can cope with these um, quite high acid loads. Uh, principally, the way that it copes with it is to remove it. Um, most of that removal goes through the rumen wall and out in the bloodstream. Some of it passes further down the gastrointestinal tract, 
a relatively small amount is um, taken up on use by the microbes themselves within the rumen. Therefore, the control of that uh, acid production becomes really important because if it's uncontrolled, then that acid buildup makes a, an environment that the rumen can't function in any longer. A high enough acid load, or to put it in another fashion, a low enough rumen pH means that the microbial community in the rumen can no longer function. It'll be, but first it'll be disabled and then it'll be killed off. So that control of the, um, of the acid production and of the acid removal is pivotal to rumen function. Now, if you have a really palatable feed that has a very high content of water-soluble carbohydrates, which are released quickly into the rumen and they're very available for the microbes, then what can happen is that the loading of the rumen and the emptying of the rumen aren't in sync any longer. So what happens is a very high water-soluble carbohydrate load put quickly into it before the rest of the systems can adapt to remove that acid as it's being produced will result in rumen acidosis. The second component we spoke about was a water load. And uh, if, if that water load is a component of the high dry matter intake, then on a practical level, one of the difficulties is the rumen has to have a certain concentration and it's maintained fairly carefully within a certain concentration bracket for optimal function again. So that water has to be removed. Now, some of that water can be passed further down the track. A lot of that, the gastrointestinal tract that is, a lot of that water will be removed again through the rumen wall and taken away by the rumen blood flow. Now, if you're adapting, as we said before, from diets of 20, 30, 40 litres a day, eaten up to diets of well over 100 or 120 litres a day, then you can imagine that there's quite some adaptations there that have to take place, first of all, in the rumen, and then in the rest of the animal around that. The blood uh, also has to maintain a certain concentration, and so if there's too much water being taken out into that, it's an issue. So what will happen in those cases is that the intake will be restricted. So the kidneys then have to adapt also to uh, removing a lot of that water from the system. So you can the audience can then understand that there's uh, more changes than meet the eye in that uh, initial period where you're adapting from one diet onto another diet. Um, the third thing and maybe uh, the most important thing which we'll come back to later is although there are changes within the rumen and there's changes within the rumen wall, the rumen uh, wall blood circulation and then the rest of the uh, systemic physiology in these animals, arguably the most important change in transition is between the ears. So in cattle in particular, uh, genuine transition uh, doesn't really take place until those animals have been taught and they're taught by slow increases in exposure to eat at a rate that doesn't overload the rumen. So another way of putting it is they learn to have their intake rate, the amount that they eat in any given period of time, underneath a threshold that means that they're not shoveling coal into the boiler at a rate that's going to explode the boiler. And once they've learned that, they hold it for the whole season. And then that process particularly uh, is one of the slower ones for them to get around. And the other processes that we spoke about within the rumen and circulation, etc., have in the end have less impact. So, for example, it is possible to transition animals onto um, fairly high levels of bead intake, so two-thirds of the way up of what they would eat if you eventually transition them to full intakes 
and to hold them there for months, months and months, three or four months on occasion. And for various mismanagement reasons after that, if those animals are then let out very quickly and they're able to eat as much as they want to, they'll increase their intake again and they get ruminacidosis. So the important component is not the time that they've been exposed to it, it's not even the amount necessarily that they're eating, but the most important component in the end of transition is teaching those animals the rate of intake that can match that. That's the reason why in the end, at the end of transition, these animals are on unrestricted feed intake. Anytime they wanted to, they could put their head down and they can eat some more. Super. That was a fantastic explanation of why to transition. And I think there's a lot of people have been so used to growing a traditional Swede or a traditional Neep and have just treated it in, in the same way. And I think how you've explained it there, it very much is a different crop. And the slow exposure, the teaching animals to eat it is, is absolutely essential. So now that we know why we transition, can you explain how we actually practically go about the transition? Okay, so there's uh, a few of those features of the crop that we have to go back to if we're going to talk about what the transition protocols are based on. So the first one that we said with that is that we're going to limit their exposure to the crop in the early stages. So we're going to feed them a small amount of that crop and then we're going to increase that over a period of time. Now, if that was a, that's no different, I should add, that is no different at all from the approach that many of your audience would have taken with cereal grains in um, feedlot, for example, feedlot diets with uh, beef steers. They wouldn't automatically start on a high level of cracked wheat and let the animals work it out themselves. They'd, they'd know very well what would happen if they did that. But if we're to use the example of um, feedlot diets, the way a feedlot diet would work is that it would start with a certain level of uh, cereal grain or water-soluble carbohydrate, if you like, a certain content of that in the diet. But in most cases, if you think about it for a moment, the diet or the amount that they eat won't be restricted. So what would happen is that the ration mix would be changed. So there's less cereal grain in it originally. And then by the end of it, the cereal grain level can be very high over the period of that transition. But all the way along there, they'll still have unrestricted intakes or very close to unrestricted intakes. And of course, in the feedlot world, having unrestricted intakes is a very important component of being able to tolerate those very high cereal grain diets. So if they do run out of feed and then they get hungry, they change the way they eat, they eat harder and they can run into trouble. So if we were going to think this through for what we said with the features of the crop we had before and we're going to allocate a small amount to it, then we've got a couple of practical problems that we come up to straight away. Number one, it's a very high yielding crop. So if we're going to have a small amount of that, it automatically is a difficulty if we've got a really high yielding crop because the square meterage that we're going to be dealing with is going to be very low. Number two, we said before that it's effectively two different feeds in that crop. So we have to balance all the time the amount of leaf that we're giving with the amount of bulb because they always will go ahead and eat the leaf and we want them to eat the leaf and the energy-rich bulb. So therefore, we're going to be strip grazing and we're going to be strip grazing at least in the beginning on a very small area. And then the third thing is, on a practical basis, if we are restricting the amount of beet in diet in transition, and we are and we must do with cattle, then we have to have another portion of the diet, the other component of the diet, if you like, to begin with, that maintains them at a fully fed status. Now, we have to do that for a few reasons. One, it's productive. Two, there's a welfare issue around it. And three, there's a practical issue 
hungry animals tend to put a lot of pressure on electric fences. And in the early days in New Zealand, when we were first working our way through the transition protocols, they were the three things that the wheels fell off on. And they're what we'll now spend a moment talking about practically what you would do. Now, if we're going to put them together and put them in a practical sense on farm, then there's a short way that we could define them. So these, these are, are simple um, understandings that we use all the time. And then when we come around to later on looking at individual livestock systems, we'll expand on them directly and what they mean for each of those livestock systems. But the first thing is to say space. The second one is either yield or allocation and knowing that and being able to do that accurately. And then the third thing is timing. But space is number one for a good reason. So we need, we need space in the sense that uh, if we're going to be using this uh, as we do on a mob basis or a flock basis, then we're going to have a fairly large number of animals who aren't being individually fed. So while it's fine for us to talk about transition on an individual basis, we have to be aware that the way that we treat the larger group affects how the individual eats, or more importantly, in most cases, doesn't eat. So the first practical problem we had in New Zealand beginning this was with a long history of winter cropping, most of which were brassica crops, um, farmers weren't used to having space for the animals in transition. And while everybody talks about transition to a brassica crop, in reality, there is no transition to a brassica crop and it's an adaptation period for them to get to higher and higher intakes, but there's really very few animal health issues that are encountered in that. They, the, the, the crops just aren't as rich or as energy dense and you don't have the same issues that you see with beet. So what would happen in those cases is that historically farmers would plan out the whole of the paddock. They'd plan to the four points of the compass on the paddock because they were going to maximise the use of that paddock. That was a fair enough point. Now, with the brassica crops, that didn't matter. They could put the electric wire up inside with enough space to run the mob or the herd on. And when they did, they'd trample most of it, they'd eat some of it. And within a period, which is always before a week, they would then be up to pretty much full intakes and they'd go from there. Now, of course, when that was repeated with beet, it was um, one disaster after another. And so the first thing from a space point of view that we did practically to change that was that I instituted the idea of a headland. And what a headland meant was that there was an area at the end of the, the paddock where you were beginning that wasn't planted out in beet. Um, in the earliest days of this, we didn't have beet buckets. It was something that we developed um, as we went further along with the crop. Today, um, people would ordinarily still plant to the four points of the compass, but they would clean a headland out with a beet bucket. But what we did originally was to plant out a headland in something else, so it would be grass or something else. And the, the size of that headland uh, we could work out within a couple of years of research uh, fairly accurately. Uh, if that headland was less than about six metres, then what you would find is if there were larger groups, her, cattle in particular, so it, our, our common mob size for cattle on beet is 400 or 450 to 500. And if there were uh, less than six metres on that, then the difficulty that we would have would be that the lighter and shyer animals would not make the use of the whole face. They'd be reluctant to walk behind the dominant animals for fear of being trapped in a corner, for example. And so you would find then that there are a number of animals that would back off the crop. Now that meant practically that whatever you were allocating on a mob basis, you weren't allocating on an individual basis. Therefore, some of those animals were getting double, some of those animals were getting none. 
And after a while, you'd run into trouble with the animals are getting more than they should. And typically what would happen is as the allocation went further and further through transition, you then would have the lighter, shyer ones that were um, always hungry because they're always being pushed off the crop. And then they would take to the crop because there was now more space for them. There was a greater distance and then they'd go from zero to 100 in no time. You'd have more trouble with them. So the the lesson that was learned out of that was that the, the real effect of having that uh, headland was to give you space so you could put the whole mob onto it and that your transition was involving the whole mob and taking them up at a uniform level. The second component of that space, which probably arguably is equally important, is the space along the line. So this is the linear space along the hot wire. Uh, we again learnt uh, at great cost in the early days that if you moved under one cattle beast um, per metre, then the lighter and shyer animals would not uh, be able to go to the face. So for those in the audience who've watched fodder beet, cattle eating fodder beet in particular, you'll notice that it takes them, particularly with uh, heavier yielding crops, it takes them a longer time to eat in, an, in any one area. They don't walk through the crop like they do with other crops. They tend to stay in place and eat. So as a consequence, they have a, a larger, if you like, personal space around them. And if you squeeze them in uh, less than one per metre, then the lighter and shyer animals get squeezed out the back. And until, again, until that allocation is increased after some days, they don't have any access at all. So the two components of space that were really important in the beginning were number one, a headland, six metres at least, often larger, and number two, one linear metre. They were almost like magic wands. They solved probably 90% of all the transition issues that we had in the early days with just those two innovations. The, the next component that we said was either yield and allocation, and you can look at them as uh, interchangeable in some fashion. And the, the practical reality with this was um, we understood from the detailed room and function work in the earliest days that the killing dose for cattle beast was about three kilograms of dry matter. In some smaller ones, it's two and a half kilograms of dry matter. So that means if they're unaccustomed to it on the first day and they would go and they would eat that, it, it is typically a fatal dose. Certainly anything over two kilograms of dry matter in the, in the, when they're unaccustomed in the first days is responsible for um, significant uh, cow illness. So, that presented a practical problem, of course, because in a 20-tonne crop, two kilograms of dry matter is simply one square metre, and in a 40-tonne crop, it's half of a square metre. So it, it's uh, very, very easy to over-allocate in that early time. The second issue that we ran into then was that historically, uh, fodder beet was lifted rather than grazed, and therefore the way that yield estimates were done were typically on a crop level and like sugar beet, the most important yield estimates were always done when they left on the truck. So there were very few um, effective methods of uh, field uh, allocation or field yield estimates. So we spent quite some time in the early years uh, working in agronomic systems to work out how we could accurately allocate. And the biggest part of that accurate allocation, of course, is to work out how you could accurately yield in dry matter terms uh, per hectare or per square metre what was in the field. So we spent uh, quite a lot of time on that and I, I think it's worth mentioning that at least um, in brief. Because um, beet crops are a precision planted crop, they're always planted in rows and 
as a consequence, it's not effective to use square metres in the same way that um, people had historically done with brassica crops, using a ring or a square metre um, that was thrown randomly onto the crop. It was a very ineffective way. There's quite some variation in the size of bulbs. There's quite a variation in the number of bulbs along a row because you get some misses and skips and things. So in the early days, the uh, the variation that was reported by people doing such things was you know more than 100%. Well, of course, that makes it impossible to allocate on that basis. So we developed some systems of yield. And in short, the, um, the simplest way to do it is to measure along a row and then do that in replicate at various places across the paddock. And uh, there's a, a published paper that became uh, widely used in the industry as the sort of industry standard for yield measurements, which um, SAC has access to now. Um, and I suggest that uh, people who are interested in it could read that and get more information. But in short, what we demonstrated in that paper was because of the fact that there were uh, skips and so there were plants missing, you had a couple of sources of variation when you were doing that yield. You had the number of plants in any meterage that you used and you had different size bulbs and of course you had a different amount of bulb and leaf so the simplest way to do this is to and to, to avoid that variation and what we demonstrated with that work early is if you were to take those rows randomly and they have to be genuinely randomly and you take five meters along that row and you measure the pull all the plants out and you measure the weight of those plants you take the row next to it as well then um, what you have with that is you've got uh, 10 linear metres. Now, because beet is a precision uh, planted crop, um, and for our purposes here, what we'll say is we'll, we'll put the uh, rows at 50 centimetres apart, and that's still reasonably common in the UK. If I then look at any square metre in that uh, hectare that I have, I'm going to have uh, two linear rows of one metre inside my square meter. So if I start between the row and I step over, it's 50 centimeters. I step over again, I'm one meter. And then I step up the row one meter and I put that a square around all of that. I'm going to have two linear rows of one meter long in my square meter. Now, if I extend that example uh, by doing five meters up two rows, then I've just measured five meters square. And if I do that at four different places in the crop, genuinely randomly, and that'll typically be enough to take into account the differences in plant number because there'll be some skips in it and the differences in bulb size. What we do in those cases is we weigh all of the plants and we cut off the leaf and then we would weigh either the leaf or the bulb again. So what you have is you have a fresh weight of the bulb and a fresh weight of the leaf. By getting uh, actual dry matter samples on them, um, which is important because they vary a lot, even with the same cultivar year to year and region to region. So there's no such thing genuinely as a book value on certain cultivars, and that becomes very important for transition. So by getting actual dry matters on that, we could get very accurate yields, particularly on the transition phases that we were going to do. So if that yield has been done and it was understood what the uh, dry matter uh, per metre square was, then you're suddenly in a position where you could allocate it. The next difficulty that we had in that allocation in the earliest years was that uh, you could allocate it uh, without too much trouble by square meterage, but you had to be quite confident that the farm staff would actually measure that square meterage. What would often happen is that they would pace it out. 
So they would, instead of actually measuring it, they'd pace it out. And sometimes you have tall people, sometimes you have short people. And um, when you've got a very high yielding crop, that difference could suddenly be two or three kilograms. And so there were genuine uh, issues in the early days. So I moved pretty promptly within a year or two to uh, particularly the first entrance. You aren't used to transitioning cattle onto it. Instead of working in square metres to rather uh, feed across the rows rather than up the rows. And so what we would then do is that you could count the rows that you were allocating every day. And if we go back to our example before, we're at 50 centimetre rows, um, not so common in New Zealand anymore. Our agronomy has moved, but, but still relatively common in the UK. Then in my square metre, I have two linear metres in every square metre. So if I have a 20 tonne crop, 20,000 kilograms of dry matter, you know, 10,000 square metre hectare, that means I have two kilograms of uh, dry matter in that one square metre or one kilogram of dry matter every metre of my row. If I have a 30 tonne crop, it's 1.5 in every metre of my row. And so there's a fairly straightforward uh, way that you can work out. Remember, we're giving one metre per animal. So there's a very straightforward way that you can work out that you're giving one kilogram or 1.5 kilograms or perhaps even two kilograms in the very big crops. But it was a straightforward way to use those rows to allocate. So if you put those um, two things together, we put the space together and then we put the um, yield understanding and the allocation together, really all of the transition uh, issues vanished at that point. It went from being a very, very serious issue with lots of uh, deaths and, and uh, illnesses to being no issue at all. And now it's quite routine. And it's only really mismanagement that uh, causes any animal health uh, problems there. There's another practical component to transition that we should say, though, which is um, timing. So, um, and this is a little bit more of sort of stock management and feel. And it works a little bit like this. Um, one of the timings that sits behind this is that it takes a while for cattle, all stock, but particularly cattle and particularly younger cattle, to accustom themselves to the idea of eating beet. Most animals, sheep and cattle, will take readily to beet leaf. They'll, they'll eat it readily. But it takes a little while longer for uh, cattle in particular to take to the idea of eating bulbs. And there's a few learned skills that they have in that. They've got to learn to uh, get them out of the ground. Cattle eat mostly beet that they can get out of the ground. If you force them to eat beet that's stuck in the ground, their intakes will go down. So they, they will they'll eat a lot more of beet that they can get out of the ground. And so they learn very quickly how to get it out of the ground. Sheep do something different and we'll get to that later. Um, but there's a learned skill in them working out that uh, how they eat bulbs and um, to, to go through that process. Uh, the second component is that even if they've been on it many years and now in the case of um, one of the farmers that I've worked with from the very earliest days, um, widely considered to be the original pioneer of uh, dairy fodder beet grazing in New Zealand, a farmer called Brendan Woods, uh, you know, functionally the Elvis Presley of uh, beet feeding in New Zealand. Uh, he's been 13 years with uh, only beet for cattle to eat. And you would think that given the whole herd, therefore, have had nothing but beet for uh, every year of their life, that they would take to it very quickly. But it's interesting that every year that the wintering cows go back onto it, there's a period that they take to readapt to get uh, onto beet. They, they don't uh, automatically remember from last year that they really loved it. 
it just doesn't work like that for whatever reason. And there'll be a period of time when they're relatively slow at the beginning. Older cattle, it's often a couple of days, and then they'll move forward after that. And even if you let them, and you shouldn't, but even if you let them, it takes about seven days or so to get up to their full intakes. That's one reason why when you see transition issue in cattle, you'll see them normally between seven and 10 days. You don't see too many transition issues on the very early days. And that's partly because it still takes them this seven days, even year after year after year, to get up to their full intakes. So there's that timing that sits behind uh, how they'll change. The other timing that became important with transition was you had, um, you, if you need to move the whole mob up uniformly, then you've got to be confident that the whole mob is eating all of the bulb, because they'll all take to eating the leaf. So you've got to be confident that the mob is eating all of the bulb at the early stages before you start increasing the ration after that. So uh, with cattle, with adult cattle, we normally start at one to two kilograms of dry matter. And then until we're confident, that's the total crop, until we're confident that all of the animals in the group are eating that bulb and eating all of that allocation, we wouldn't normally move it up. Now, some are slower than others. Like, so beef is normally slower than dairy and younger animals are often slower than older animals. But um, you're talking about a couple of days for dairy cows who are the most aggressive up to maybe uh, a week or so for the youngest um, uh, weaner cattle, for example, to hop onto it. So there's another timing behind there that has to be carefully looked at. And the final one is that uh, one way of pushing that forward or retarding that and pulling it right back is that cattle are really good at, at working out the time uh, for husbandry that they're exposed to. So, for example, in some of the early days, people would be fearful of the crop and only be starting them on a kilo or so, and they worked out pretty promptly that that kilo seemed to disappear in about half an hour. But what happened is that they would run the mob on and then they'd be back in half an hour to take them off again. Well, if I want all of the mob onto that and I want them all to uniformly move up, I have to be quite careful because they'll work me out fast. Cattle are clever and they'll work you out very fast. And a lot of them who don't want to eat it, and that is the... The reality in the early stages, you'll have 25 or 30 percent who aren't that interested in taking to it. If they know you're coming back very soon, they'll just wander by the gate and wait for you to come back. So we also learned that there was some practical timing around using that, which meant even at the early uh, allocations, which were really low and could practically be eaten in a short time, it was important to make sure that you left them on for a longer period of time so they'd understand that you weren't coming back to get them. So those three things were a very practical way uh, to to undertake transition. So we've heard uh, an understanding there about transition and how to go about allocating a crop. I think the things that stood, stood out to me there was obviously space. So having one meter linear per, per animal for cattle, having a headland, so six to 10 meter headland, giving it time so you're needing to to teach the animals to, to eat the beet you need the the rumen to to kind of adjust to adapt as Jim spoke about at the start and for the allocation it really is essential to have your dry matter analyzed and actually know what dry matter you're working with and that would be similar as well for knowing the the protein and the energy for the for that crop Jim, for taking a, a sample, some people t talk about taking a core out of it. Some people talk about taking a wedge out of it. What would you recommend folk to do? Yeah, 
Um, we would always quarter it, uh, Kirsten. I mean, that quartering was uh, some of the earliest research that we did when we were looking specifically at what the variation in dry matter was across the crop. So this was from really 2008 to about 2010. And uh, if you have that bulb in front of you, then what you've got is you've got differences in the bulb from the top to the bottom and from the outside to the inside. Now, a very simple and practical way of making sure that you get a representative sample from that bulb of all parts of that bulb is just simply to cut it in the half from top to bottom and then cut it in half again. Now, that quarter that you have there is representative of all parts of the bulb. Um, coring is a very poor way to get dry matter. Um, between the cultivars, there's a lot of differences in how strongly it shifts from the top to the bottom and the outside to the inside, particularly as you move to the higher dry matter varieties. Uh, coring, um, there's a lot of variability associated with it. It's a relatively small area that you're taking. And if you're not very careful to take the, uh, the correct angle from the top to the bottom, for example, it's very easy to uh, get an unrepresentative sample. We spent a couple of years in recent times looking at what variation you saw amongst different cultivars by uh, coring and by quartering and by weighing the entire bulb. So in the earliest years when we were doing this, when we were trying to work out which of these measures was the most effective, what we would do was simply weigh all of the bulb. We would dry all of the bulb in the ovens for three weeks. I remember famously some of these bulbs were uh, 10 and 12 kilograms and we were chopping them up into uh, pieces and putting all of the bulb in to dry it as a way to work out what were the most effective means. And simply put, the most effective means is by quartering. Uh, you can run into some significant trouble with coring, um, getting very poor estimates of the crop. And the dry matter of the crop, as you just pointed out there before, is a very, very important component of getting proper yield analyses. I point out to people quite regularly that with some of the um, relatively popular cultivars in New Zealand, I've held that same cultivar in my hand that was 6%, the bulb this is, that was 6% dry matter, and I've held the same cultivar that was 19%. So more than 300% variation in the dry matter. You have to be quite careful when you're taking book values. I, I just, I never do it and I simply don't believe it. And just finally, Jim, you spoke earlier on about uh, beet bucket and I'm sure there's some of our listeners are scratching their head thinking, what is a beet bucket? I know you have obviously designed a beet bucket and I was wondering if you could just explain further what the beet bucket does. Well, yeah, okay, thank you. Um, so in the earliest years, again, you know, one of the difficulties was that um, scraping uh, areas for cattle when people realised that they were in trouble and trying to make uh, headlands was really difficult. And then uh, at the end at the end of the crop, if there was any left over, then often that was on a block that was separate from the perhaps the dairy platform and, you know, that beet was a good feed and we were interested in using it in spring and autumn Otherwise, so there was an interest in uh, getting it out of the ground. If you use commercial harvesters, of which there were about none in the early days in New Zealand, there's quite some now. But if you use commercial harvesters, of course, they'll take off the leaf. And um, the farmers wanted to keep it all and use it. So our very earliest um, beet buckets were <laughs> gates that were wired together uh, on the front of the tractor bucket so we could push it along in front of us in a large V and then pick it up with the bucket later. And we kind of realised that there was there must be a better way. 
And so one of the New Zealand innovations is a very simple apparatus that goes on the forks of a tractor and it's pushed along in front of the tractor, three metres wide, uh, a metre or so deep. It has a bar on the front of it that uh, bumps into the beat and then they, they sort of push forward and then they get pushed back into the bucket. Um, you can load an eight-tonne silage wagon in about four or five minutes. So you can pick up a lot of beet in a very short time. You leave the leaf on it. Uh, the dirt bounces out underneath the bottom. It's a grid sort of bottom underneath it. It's very straightforward sort of process, really easy and uh, pretty straightforward. I, I guess most of the farmers who would use beet now would likely have one because they use them to make headlands, they use them to clean up, and commonly now they're used in pre-transition where people are picking it up and putting it out to them on the pasture before they come and begin transition itself. Super, thank you. I thought I'd just clarify that. So I hope everybody listening now understands the absolute importance of transition and how to go about allocating fodder beet to livestock. I really need to reiterate that it's not a traditional brassica and it is a beet, so it's got high sugar content and it really does require careful management, um, including the plant transition period, just as Jim has explained to us today. So thank you for joining us for this podcast. We have some more in the series. The next one will be about transition again, but it will be species specific and we'll discuss sheep and beef. We also have a series of webinars running through November with Jim again, specifically on sheep, beef and dairy. And there's recordings of these webinars available on the FAST website. So thank you, Jim. And please do join us for the next one that is species specific. Thank you. A pleasure.